0: Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. got to start by telling you a story. Uh, When I was a little kid, I I liked to play chess and I taught my dad how to play chess because he didn't know and I wanted to play with him. And so even like right after I taught him how to play chess, he beat me on his very first game. And actually to this day, I've still never beaten my dad at chess because I've learned something about myself and it's that I'm not very good at anticipating the consequences of my actions. Uh, So I'm not a very good chess player. And it appears that I've done that yet again today because I've been informed this morning that it was probably a really poor idea for me to give everybody rocks on a day that I was preaching. So I'm just asking that you would have mercy, uh, hold off on throwing those at me for a little bit and wait till the end of the sermon when we will talk about those. Uh, here is my sermon in a sentence for you this morning. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past and every sinner has a has a future. If you hopped in your DeLorean this morning, if I gave you a time machine and you could go back to any moment in your life and change it, which moment would you choose? Which event would you change? I read the story a while back of a guy named Rogers Cadenhead, and Rogers Cadenhead was a computer whiz a few years ago who capitalized on an opportunity that he saw. You see, a while back when Pope John Paul II died, Rogers Cadenhead purchased the internet domain name benedict 16thcom and he purchased this website before the Roman Catholic Church realized that they were going to need it. And so just a few days later, when Benedict XVI became the Pope, the Catholic Church wanted that website back. Now, uh, Rogers Cadenhead, he probably could have sold this website for six figures. This could have been a great moneymaker, but Rogers Cadenhead, he didn't want money. He did, however, ask for three things from the Catholic Church in exchange for this website. First, he said, he wanted one of those pointy Pope hats. (laughs) Secondly, he wanted a free stay at the Vatican Hotel, and thirdly, he wanted forgiveness for the third week of March, 1987, no questions asked. <laughs> I wonder what happened then. If you could, which moment would you erase? Which action would you undo? Keep that time machine moment in your mind, but, but put it on a shelf in a corner of your mind. Don't let it go too far away, though, because we're going to pull it back out later. Our story for the day is in John chapter 8. Open your Bibles with me. John chapter 8. The story is the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Perhaps you've heard this story before. But before we jump into the text and the sermon, let me just preface this sermon by telling you that one time one of my heroes told me never to preach this text. And here's why. If you'll see it in your Bibles, you'll probably notice that from John chapter 7, verse 53, through John chapter 8, verse 11, it's most likely in italics, or at the very least, it probably has a footnote under it, and here's why. Buckle into your nerd seats with me here for just a minute. Before the year 1454, when the printing press was invented, if you wanted to get a copy of Scripture, the way you got that copy was by writing down the whole thing by hand. And these handmade copies of Scripture from ancient times are called manuscripts. Now, the Bible is far and away the most copied document of all time. We have over 20,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts. In fact, the manuscript evidence is so overwhelming that the majority of scholars, both Christian and non-Christian, agree that we can know the original words of our New Testament with more certainty than any other ancient text. And that's because the scribes who copied these manuscripts were trained to do so without making mistakes. However, they were also human. And so uh, we have this huge number of manuscripts, but as you begin to compare these manuscripts for, to one another, you'll notice that there are these little teeny tiny slight variances. And it's by comparing these minuscule differences that scholars try to determine as closely as possible what the original author wrote down. This is called the science of textual criticism. If you wanna dive more deeply into textual criticism, if that uh, intrigues you, I'd highly encourage you to sign up for EquipU where we get into that in semester two. We take a deep dive into things like that. And all of that to say this. Here in John chapter eight, our best and earliest manuscripts do not contain this story of the woman caught in adultery. And additionally, this story here in John chapter eight is really different grammatically from the rest of the gospel of John in the original Greek. And that's why the best scholars in the world all almost unanimously agree that John did not write this story, which is why my professor told me never to preach this text. And I tend to agree with him. I don't think that this story was originally written by the apostle John. However, Many of the world's finest scholars do also agree that this story is apostolic. It's been around long enough in church tradition. It bears the right marks of authenticity, and it is true to the characteristics of Jesus's life that we see in other stories, so much so that I think we can logically conclude that although this story was not in John's original gospel, it is an authentic event from the life of Jesus, which is why I'm ignoring his advice in preaching this text this morning. And I say all of this, I say all of this, not so you will doubt the authenticity of the Bible in your hands, just the opposite. I say this so that you will know that we do not naively accept fairy tales as truth, that as Christians, we are not afraid to ask hard, difficult questions in this church because we believe that the truth has nothing to hide. And there is a delicate art and a legitimate scientific field dedicated to determining the veracity of scripture. And all of that, all of that, leads me to a deeper faith that this is indeed God's word, and you can trust it. All of that, now let's dive in. John chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So here Jesus is, he's in Jerusalem, he's teaching at the temple, when all of a sudden the religious teachers drag in this woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery, causes quite a commotion, he's interrupted, and can you imagine the shame. It says she'd been caught in the act of adultery. Can you imagine your your worst moment, your deepest, darkest sin, your time machine moment that you regret broadcast on this screen for everybody to see? Now, in, in one sense, the religious leaders, they weren't wrong in what they were saying. This gal had been way out of line. Adultery is an obvious sin, and the law commanded that she be killed. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says this, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Both of them deserve to die, but whoa, 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 hold up. Where's the man? Adultery, by definition, cannot be done alone. It takes two to tango, and yet the fact that they only snag the woman here reveals that their interest is not just upholding the law. They are primarily interested in trapping Jesus and so just like this woman had been used by her lovers for, their, for her body, now she's being used again by the religious leaders to prop up their little empire of exploitation and self-righteousness. And here's the trap they're setting for Jesus. If Jesus says on the one hand, yeah, go ahead, kill her. Then he loses his reputation as a compassionate friend of sinners. Plus the Romans are gonna be all over him because he has no right to pronounce capital punishment. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, let her go, then Jesus could rightly be accused of disregarding God's law. So what's he gonna do? But just like Jesus, he refuses to fall into their trap and he definitely refuses to let their hypocrisy go undetected. Look what happens here in verse six. It says, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now that's a tantalizing little detail, isn't it? We have no idea what Jesus was writing. I don't know, maybe, maybe Jesus was just doodling. We could speculate. Maybe he's just taking a minute to think. Maybe Jesus is trying to divert his eyes from the half-dressed woman in front of him to avoid lusting. Maybe Jesus is scribbling in the dirt the names of those religious teachers, maybe even writing a list of their sins. Maybe Jesus is writing scripture, reminding them of what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 13, where he wrote that those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. Whatever Jesus is writing, we don't know what he's writing, but we do know that he's not giving the religious leaders the satisfaction of a reactive response. They want Jesus to fly off the handle, and he's not going to do it. He's taking a minute. He's totally in control. And so they keep bugging him. They keep wanting him to react. And here's what happens. Jesus stands up, and he responds. Verses 7 through 9 says, When they kept on questioning him, He straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Now, if Steve was preaching this text... He would tell you that the older ones left first because they were wiser. (laughs) But I'm preaching this text. (laughs) So I'm gonna tell you that the older ones left first because they'd sinned a whole lot more than the younger ones. (laughs) I don't know. But you can imagine the woman there, can't you? Crouching, cringing, her eyes clamped shut, anticipating the first row of the rock against her skull. She knows what's coming. She knows she deserves it. And as she waits there, anticipating the first blow, she hears a sound. And one by one, the rocks begin to fall. It was the sound of grace. And then, after a few moments, she dared, she dared to open her eyes. And she saw one face. And she heard one voice. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Wow. Jesus, in the way that only he can, he manages to thread the needle here and he avoids this trap without disregarding either the woman or the law. Now notice, notice, Jesus never says that adultery is okay. Because Jesus knows that sin is violent and destructive and that sex is a good gift from God, but that when sex is misused outside of the covenant of a marriage between one man and one woman, it is a deadly force of evil in the world. And Jesus never says that the law is wrong. Jesus just says, hey, if you're gonna get serious about the law, you gotta start with a good, long, hard look in the mirror. Because Jesus sees that inside the hearts of these religious teachers, they are full of deceit and mockery and hatred and bitterness, sin that is every bit as deadly as the sin of adultery in the heart of this woman. And so Jesus says, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now that's a pretty famous line, right? Let he who's without sin throw the first stone. And people like to throw that line around basically saying, hey, you don't judge me. Is that what Jesus means? Is Jesus saying that we have to be sinless to call someone else out on their sin? I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at because if that were true, uh, justice could never be served, right? We wouldn't have a functioning court system if we had to have sinless judges. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if you're gonna hold her to the law, you gotta hold yourselves to the law too. So what did the law say about this kind of a scenario? Well, by Jewish law, two or more witnesses had to see the crime happen in order for the charge to be valid. And not only that, Jesus knows that Deuteronomy chapter 17 says that it is those two witnesses of the crime who should be the first ones to put the criminal to death. And Jesus knows that even beyond that, Deuteronomy chapter 19 says that the only witnesses who would be credible to do such a thing are witnesses who are free from malice, who are unbiased and have no deceit. So what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, okay, let's stick to the law. Step forward. Which one of you saw this happen? Which ones of you are willing to admit that you're a peeping Tom? (laughs) Or worse, that you arranged an adulterous sting operation to trap me? Which one of you are truly free from deceit and mockery and bitterness in this moment? Go ahead, step forward. And so one by one, they drop their rocks and they leave. And just like that, Jesus addresses and exposes the sin of everybody involved with piercing truth and lavish grace. Man, I love this story, don't you? Jesus is brilliant. But beyond that even, I love this story because this is my story. How many times in my moment of deepest, darkest need, When all I deserved was the wages of my own sin, death, I was met instead by the free gift of God's grace. How many times have I been this woman? And yet what makes me squirm this morning is that I've not just been the woman, but there have been a whole lot of other times that I've been the one with the rock in my hand. And that's what this text exposes in me and maybe it does in you too. I think, I think we see in this story three characteristics of rock throwers. And the first one we see is this, rock throwers hide their junk. Rock throwers hide their junk. There was, there was an article a while back entitled this. It said, Yellowstone geyser coughs up junk from the past. And as it turns out, the Ear Spring geyser in Yellowstone National Park had been dormant for a long time, but all of a sudden it started going again and spewing water up 30 feet into the air. And in the process of doing this, it just coughed up a bunch of objects from underground. A bunch of objects like old coins and a shoe heel and an oil funnel and a National Park souvenirs and warning signs, Kodak film packaging, even a 1930s baby pacifier. I have no idea what happened to the baby, hope he's okay. Park officials were a little bewildered by this, but I guess at the end of the day, they were happy because this geyser decided to cough up all the trash that was in her guts. Now we've all got some junk inside, don't we? And sometimes that junk gets coughed up into the light. In the very next verse after this story, Jesus says in John chapter eight, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that sounds really nice, right? Jesus being the light of the world. Until I admit that actually, I kind of like the darkness. Because in my house, when you flip the lights off and it gets dark, I don't have to see the messes on the floor anymore. I don't have to see the, the dishes in the sink. It's great. But when you flip the lights on in the morning, oh man, the junk is just unavoidable, isn't it? Jesus is the light of the world. And not everybody loves that. He said to Nicodemus, you might remember in John chapter 3, that light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The light exposed their junk. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And here in John chapter 8, the light of the world is shining and exposing the junk inside these rock throwing religious teachers. But the more time I spend in this story, the more the light bounces off of them and looks inside of me. So let me ask you are you hiding your junk? Are there areas of your life, areas of your heart that you're refusing to let the light shine into? Because if so, then just like these religious leaders, you are in grave danger of missing out on grace. Because there's this principle in the life of Jesus that when sin is brought into the light willingly, it is met by his grace. But when sin is hidden and left to fester in the darkness, it is met with his judgment. That's what's happening here. You see, we can only know the amazingness of grace when we first own up to the ugliness of our own sin. Grace isn't all that good if you don't think you're all that bad. And so one real Christian teacher says this. He says, it is the saints who have a sense of sin. The sense of sin is the measure of a soul's awareness of God. So how aware are you of your sin? Of course, we'd never say we were perfect, right? But, but, but do we live like it? Maybe the better question is this. When's the last time you confessed? Is confession to a brother or sister a regular rhythm of your relationships and of your walk with the Lord? Because if it's not, then you could be in danger of becoming like the parable Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18 of the unmerciful servant. There was this servant who, who owed a great debt to the master, a debt so great he could never repay it. But in this shocking moment of mercy, the master pardons the servant's whole debt. And yet instead of going out happy and rejoicing and giving grace to everybody around him, as soon as he leaves the master's presence, this unmerciful servant rings the neck of another guy who owed him just a few bucks. See, the first step in becoming a rock thrower is forgetting how desperately you need grace for the junk in your life. But if you live in the grace, then, you, you, then you'll know, and as I know, that, that I am as in need of grace today as I have been any other day of my life, that I will never, ever, ever graduate from Grace. The grace is not just the diving board that got me into the pool. Grace is the pool that I'm gonna keep swimming in every day of my life. But, but if rock throwers hide their junk, then that leads us to the second characteristic of rock throwers, which is that rock throwers think too highly of themselves. And you all know people like this, right? People who think they're better than they actually are. Most of us probably are these people. It's like the, the story I heard of the little leaguer who came back from the first practice one evening. And his mom said, how'd it go, buddy? He said, oh, it's fantastic. Even the coach said that I was the best of the worst three. (laughs) That was like my little league career. (laughs) And you know, even at our best, we are just the best of the worst. And yet if we live in the light, if we live in the light of confession and grace, then we have no room to boast because we are living in constant awareness of the fact that every saint has a past. If anybody ever had the right to brag, to think highly of themselves, it was probably the apostle Paul. I mean, this guy was the greatest missionary, the greatest author, the greatest theologian in Christian history. But take a look at what Paul said about himself in 1 Timothy chapter one. He said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, notice he's not hiding his junk. He's not thinking too highly of himself. He says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, notice very carefully what Paul says there. He doesn't say, I was the worst. He's not just talking about his past. He says, I am the worst right now in this moment. You see, a grace-filled attitude says, the biggest sinner I know is me. And and, and that's just the truth. That's the truth for me this morning. To this day, the biggest sinner I know is me. I'm well acquainted with the junk in my heart. You see, there's, there's there's this one person in my life who drives me nuts. Uh, There's this one person in my life and and I I cut a lot of slack for him. I bet you, you probably have one person like that too. You've got this one person who lies to you, who cheats on you, who makes promises to you that he or she has absolutely no intention of keeping. You have one person who lets you down over and over and over again. And yet, every time that person asks for forgiveness, you give it. Every time they beg for a second chance, you let them have it. And that one person is you. You see, rock throwers love to accuse in someone else what they excuse in themselves. So if rock throwers hide their junk and rock throwers think too highly of themselves, that leads us to the third characteristic of rock throwers. And it's just that rock throwers aren't much fun. (laughs) There's no better way to say it. Perhaps you've heard the old proverb that you can tell a person by the company she keeps. Well, Jesus kept company with sinners. Jesus had a tax collector for a disciple and a former demon-possessed woman for a friend, and he befriended Samaritans and ate with prostitutes and and, and traitors and partied with tax collectors. So so why why then don't those same kinds of people like being with us? Sadly, I, I bet if you ask the average Joe or Jane on the street about what a Christian is, they could probably tell you a lot about our opinions. I wonder if they could tell you very much about about our stories, about how much grace Jesus has given us. They could probably tell you a lot about the things that we advocate for and like and don't like. But do they know you have a past? Do they know how Jesus has worked in your life to redeem you and rescue you? Mahatma Gandhi, who was not a Christian, said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think that's become, some, sometimes we can be guilty of embracing God's truth without embodying God's grace. Because hear me, we, we will never abandon the truth. We, we love, we love, we love the truth. And yet truth without love, truth without grace can be used as a weapon So many times I have seen deadly wounds inflicted in people's hearts by sharpened words of truth, often with Bible verses attached, hurled by people with logs in their eyes. We are living, church, in a world full of people who are desperately in need of hope. And I really believe that every person you bump into has a little question lingering down inside their heart, whether they know it or not, because there's darkness in their heart and they're wondering, they're wondering, is there some place that I'm safe to come into the light to be fully known and still be fully loved? And we hold the answer in our hands in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the place. We are the people. He's the one. The answer is a resounding yes. And yet all too often, instead of handing out hope, we throw rocks instead. You see, the problem in John chapter eight with these religious teachers is that they were dividing people up into two categories, righteous and unrighteous, good and bad. And we're the good people, so we get to throw rocks at the bad people. But they got it all wrong. The Bible says there's no one righteous, no, not one. There are no good people. But there are two categories. There are bad people who deny it and bad people who admit it. There are sinners who linger in the dark and there are sinners who step into the light. And the one in this passage who steps into the light, the light of the world, she finds grace. See, the woman was not the only one in this text who was caught in her sin, but she is the only one who stuck around Jesus long enough to embrace his grace and to let her heal her. And I'm pretty sure healing was the last thing she expected to find in the temple that day. Because she was caught red-handed. She was utterly defenseless. Defenseless. She expected judgment. She'd earned judgment, but she was given grace instead. Because while every saint has a past, every sinner, every sinner, every sinner has a future. Now, there's a woman named Jill Price who can't forget things. Uh, you, you can ask her a question like, hey, where were you on August 29th, 1980? And she'll say, it was a Friday. I, was, uh, I went to Palm Beach with my friends. You could ask her, when, when was the third time you drove a car? She'd say, the third time I drove a car was January 10th, 1981. Where were you the first time you heard the song, Jessie's Girl? (laughs) It's March 7th, 1981. My mother was yelling at me in the car. (laughs) Jill Price is the first person to be diagnosed with a mental condition known as highly superior autobiographical memory. In other words, she can't forget. She remembers every day of her life in the way that you and I remember yesterday. She can recite every day of the week since 1980, where she was, who she was with, what she was doing And that may sound like fun to you, but Jill Price says her memory can be her prison. She said this, and I quote, she said, it is nonstop, uncontrollable, and totally exhausting. Most have called it a gift, but I call it a burden. I run my entire life through my head every day. Now you may not have a perfect memory, but my guess is you have a crystal clear memory of your secrets. So if this really is that safe place that people are looking for, then, then let's let the geyser cough up our junk to the surface a little bit, okay? I want you to go back to that time machine moment. I want you to pull it into your mind right now. Uh, the the lie that you told, the, the person you were with, the, the thing that you did, the words that were said, the thing that happened to you. And for you, maybe maybe that memory is your prison. And and what you hide can't be healed. And listen, there there is no hiding from Jesus. He's the light of the world. He he sees you. And and so whatever's hiding in, in the dark corners of your heart right now, maybe it is a sin you committed. Maybe it's something that you were powerless over that happened to you. Maybe it's just weakness that you're wrestling with that you just can't seem to shake. I don't know what it is. But if the statistics hold true, many of you have looked at pornography recently. And some of you are enslaved to it. Some of you have an eating disorder. Many of you don't like the way your bodies look. Some of you've harmed yourself. Some of you've thought about suicide, and and some of you may have even attempted it. Some of you are dealing with crippling anxiety. Some of you have this, this low level anger that's just kind of boiling and it can just rage up at a moment's notice. Some of you are being harassed or abused. Some of you may be harassing or abusing others. Some of you are struggling deeply with depression. Some of you aren't sure if you even believe in God at all. Some of you are trying to hide your drinking. Some of you are trying to keep your drug problem a secret. Some of you might be committing adultery. Some of you might be fighting gender dysphoria. As some of you are under intense pressure right now to do something that you know you shouldn't do, but you don't see an easy way out. I don't know what it is, but I do know there's a broken heart beating inside every chest in this room. There's a scar on every soul. But if Jesus really is the light of the world, then that means that he can shine into that darkness. So if you've never done it, I'm just asking that you take a step of faith and confess your weakness. Steve and I would always love to talk with you. We have other godly people, men and women. You can email us, call us, reach out to us. Talk to your home group leader. Find a good, wise, godly Christian friend who can walk with you to the cross. Step into the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. So if every saint really does have a past and if every sinner really does have a future, then step out of the shadows and into the light. And if it's a sin issue, bring your sin to Jesus. He will not ignore your sin. He will not excuse your sin. He will call you to go and leave your life of sin. Yes, he does say, come as you are, but he also says, please, please, please do not stay that way because he has a better future for you. And as you step into the light, you will not be met by a hailstorm of rocks. You will be met with a meteor shower of grace. Look around you real quick. Look around you. I know it's awkward. Just look around you. Stop staring at me. Look around you. (laughs) Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Who in here is going to throw a rock at you? The only one who was sinless enough to truly judge us, to stone us for our sin, chose instead to step into the firing line himself and take the punishment for us, which is why Paul can say in Romans chapter eight, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, who then is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The one who could have thrown a stone at us through grace instead. Even today, if you are guilty of a crime and you go to court, but nobody shows up to excuse you, accuse you, you're free to go. Which is why Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I heard a story of a long time ago, back in the day of horses and buggies, There was a father who took the horse and buggy to the schoolhouse to pick up his three young kids and he was getting them early because there was a winter snowstorm coming in. And and, and just as he had gotten done loading his kids into the buggy, but before he could hop in himself, his horses bolted straight into the approaching blizzard. And hours and hours and and miles later, when he finally found them, he he saw his oldest girl sobbing, standing over the bodies frozen of, of her brother and sister. And as she collapsed into his arms, explaining that she tried to take her big heavy coat and wrap it around all three of them to keep them warm. She said, the coat wasn't big enough, daddy. The coat wasn't big enough. But listen, church, the blood of Jesus is big enough. And the cross of Jesus is big enough. And the empty grave of Jesus is big enough. And the grace of Jesus is big enough to cover your sin and mine and to rescue us all over again. So when you came in here this morning, you should have grabbed a rock. If you didn't get a rock, grab one on your way out or I'm sure you can find a rock somewhere. <laughs> I want you to keep this rock in your pocket this week. And, and, and this is not for you to like uh, use to settle disputes between you and your spouse. This is not for you to dominate in a rock, paper, scissors tournament or anything like that. And if your kids take this and break a window with it, I am truly, truly sorry. Um, in fact, I would be happy to cover the damage. You can send the bill to me. My email address is swight at plainfieldchristian.com. I want you to carry this rock around in your pocket this week as a reminder. And every time you're tempted to throw a rock at somebody, I want you to remember that the one who could have thrown a rock at you chose to throw grace instead. And he will give you the power to extend that same grace to those around you. And it'll be a little uncomfortable having a rock in your pocket. And it's a little uncomfortable stepping from the darkness into the light. But every time this week that you are tempted to let guilt or shame or fear overwhelm you and drag you back into the darkness, I want you to remember that the one who could have condemned you chose to stand next to you instead. And because of that, every sinner with a past can become a saint with a future. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are the light of the world and that is comfort for the afflicted and it is affliction for the comfortable so shine on us Lord with your perfect grace and your piercing truth expose our sin call us into your light and shower us with your grace and we're here again at this time that we love to remember when you did just that And that because of your blood poured out on the cross, because of your body that was pierced, we can be free. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.